Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the 1989 cult classic Roadhouse, directed by Rowdy Harrington. Patrick Swayze stars as a bouncer, James Dalton, an effortlessly cool eccentric loner who is hired to clean up a chaotic bar in rural Missouri. His new job leads him into a violent feud with a corrupt local businessman as he upsets the social balance of the town. This movie we watched together, which I feel was a true gift. When you Google it, there's a lot of kind of posts about it from the epic bacon era of blogging, where it's like, oh, this movie's so bad, it's good. It's the classic terrible film. But watching this film without that backstory, although I was aware it had a cult following, I would not describe this as bad. This is a great movie. (laughs) It's a very specific type of movie, but it is the pinnacle of that type. Well, you sent me, and we will, of course, link to this as always, a hilarious post from around five years ago on The Ringer about the film by Mark Titus. Um, They did like a week of like movies that are so bad, they're good. And to be fair, this post does lay out many things that happen in this movie that are just never explained that don't make any logical sense. But that's movie magic. Like, you don't need yes. an explanation for these things. I mean, the part of the reason why this article is so great is because it lists exhaustively many, many things that simply happen in this film. Because as the post accurately points out, it's quite hard to analyse this movie in a normal manner. But I think the magic of Roadhouse is that it can deliver this kind of machine gun spray of bullets of amazing ideas into your face. And you're so gobsmacked, you never at once think, wow, what's going on here? Because you're too busy having fun. But like, literally the concept is... It's kind of like if you imagine the subculture of John Wick, where you just accept while watching John Wick that there is a whole secret society of mega assassins who have their own currency and all live out of a hotel and have code names. And you're like, of course they do. This makes perfect sense. And in this movie, it's like, oh, he is the most famous bouncer in America. And on one hand, I'm like, sure, if you are in a niche job, there are people who are really famous in that career, which you will know as someone who used to be a rare bookseller. I'm sure there is the Patrick Swayze of your booksellers, although not in a good way, I imagine. But even in that kind of concept, this movie just lives in a completely other universe, which could only really happen in a film from the 80s. I've not seen Cocktail, but I feel like Cocktail with Tom Cruise is definitely in the same vein. But literally the beginning of this movie is just showing off how cool Patrick Swayze's character Dalton is. And then someone desperately headhunting him because they're like, I need you to clean up my bar. You are the only person with the skill set to stop my bar being a haven of crime. And he does so. And it is incredible to watch. Well, one of the things pointed out in this post on The Ringer was like, you have to just accept that he's like, yeah, I'll absolutely move across the country to clean up this shitty bar because that sounds appealing and it's like oh that's not remotely implausible based on (laughs) what they've set up for us in the first five minutes of this movie because everything we know of this man is just that he's like an unearthly being whose purpose in life is to clean up shitty bars like that is just where his meaning comes from 
Well, as we both remarked while watching, this movie is definitely from a lineage of Westerns. It is unrelentingly 1980s while also being extremely classic Western because it's about this guy who's like a lone gunslinger, a mysterious guy who he's masculine, but like in a different way. And also every single scene is basically the 1980s version of a comically overblown Western bar fight where someone gets thrown through those swinging doors. You know, it's that vibe. Most of the people in this movie are stuntmen in the classic sense of the word, not where it's like this is someone who is the best martial artist in America, but someone who is incredibly good at having their head smashed through a table. And their art is really on display here in a way that I respect to my very bones. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you specifically said this when you were doing the intro, but the reviews for this movie when it came out were very, very terrible. People did not get what was going on. Everyone was mad. I think part of that was probably that this was the first movie Patrick Swayze did after Dirty Dancing. Um, And obviously that had been this huge, just like cultural phenomenon. And he's so hot and romantic in that movie. But also that movie was accidentally a hit because famously, I've not even seen Dirty Dancing, but I do know that that movie was meant to, like basically it was intended to be like a nearly straight to video movie. They were not expecting it to be a huge smash hit. And then it became the most lucrative romance movie ever made or something, you know? (laughs) Well, a classic example of Hollywood being like, women? Question mark? Like, it's like, I mean, I love Dirty Dancing. We should definitely do an episode on it one day. And it's like a perfect example of like classic Hollywood storytelling. Like you can't actually find the script. Like there's no remaining copy of it available, but all the beats are just like, yes, this is like a hero's journey in like the best possible way. But it's so well made. He is such a star. Jennifer Grey's also great, obviously, but in terms of like the movie's clearly being marketed to women and it has like the hottest man in the history of cinema in it, like it was clearly going to be a hit. And so then he does this movie where he's still unbelievably attractive, of course, but it's, like, all about men. And it's this, like, complete riff on old westerns, which we talk a lot about the fact that, like, in the 80s and early 90s, you did get a ton of Hollywood movies that were very explicitly riffing on classic Hollywood. But clearly the fact that that's what this movie was doing just, like, either didn't work for people or didn't register for people because it was not popular or critically acclaimed. I'm not super fluent in Westerns, like of the old Hollywood genres. That's the one I've definitely seen the least of. But it was so obvious to us. Like when we were watching it, we were just like, oh, it's a Western. And because I was sort of understanding it in that context, it all made such sense to me. Because if you're looking for it to make logical sense, like that's not what the movie is trying to do. It's trying to make a Western from the 30s slash 40s set in 1989 in Missouri, in quotes. It's clearly Southern California, but it's fine. And I mean, it definitely does feed into that 1980s era of so bad it's good action movies, but I think this ages so much better, right? Because this is the era... If you look at the trajectory of action movies, the way that a lot of people analyse it is there was this period in the sort of late 70s to late 80s where the stars were really larger than life. They're doing stuff that's really absurd. They look really ridiculous. So like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jean-Claude Van Damme are both unbelievably muscular, you know, Chuck Norris movies. Steven Seagal is like the dark side of this 
appalling, <laughs> appalling movies, appalling person, but all of their films are about creating this star image where it's like, I am the ultimate macho man. Everything I'm doing is superhuman. I have no flaws. Maybe they'll have a dead wife or something, but we all know that's ridiculous. And then right at the end of the 80s, you have Die Hard. And that's the point where Bruce Willis is like, oh, actually, this is a lot better if you have some fallibility and that turns the tide really rapidly. But this movie is kind of in that genre in that Patrick Swayze's character is a complete Mary Sue. Like he is the perfect person. Everyone is like, God, you're so impressive. And he's gorgeous. But I just find myself accepting that so much more because kind of the point of his character is that he is not macho in the way that a lot of the antagonists are. He's more like, I have feelings and I'm sensitive and I'm really thoughtful. You know, famously, he has a philosophy degree from NYU in this movie. And he just has, the way I described it after watching the film, I was like, oh, this is a movie about like a Jedi who's a bouncer and is also the hottest man on earth. That is pretty much how you encapsulate his characterization. So it is, I think, a lot more nuanced than the macho extremity of Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, you would not have Schwarzenegger in this role because when he he did roles that were kind of meant to be soft, it was in self-parody where it's like, isn't it hilarious when there's a big muscular guy who has to look after babies? Whereas here, Patrick Swayze is the guy who just did this romantic musical movie that's for girls. And you're just like, oh, he's so dreamy. Like he's so sensitive. He's got feelings. And unfortunately, some of those feelings are that his sad backstory is that he ripped someone's throat out with his hands. But we have to understand that sometimes people have those feelings. (laughs) Sometimes you have a signature move and it's not lifting a girl over your head. It's ripping someone's throat out with your bare hands. Everyone is different. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, he absolutely, like your line that you just said about him being the hottest man alive who's a bouncer and a Jedi is just like, sums up the whole movie so perfectly. Every single person in this movie wants to sleep with this man. Literally every character is just like, going crazy because they're so desperate to fuck this guy, which like, it's fair. He's very hot. And I think that's an almost textual component of the film, right? Which I think- When we both watched it, we were like, didn't he literally just have a threesome with Sam Elliott and his girlfriend? And when we Googled it, it seemed like no one else had picked up on this, but it very much felt like, you know, (laughs) you see the before scene- And then you have a sort of a cut like you do in the vintage movie where they can't show the sex scenes in the 30s. And then you have the morning after scene where they're all being really flirty in a diner. And it's like, we know what happened in the middle section of these two scenes, you know? (laughs) I was shocked that no one else, that we, from our like superficial Googling, had picked up on this because it seemed quite obvious to me. And the vibes are powerful. I definitely have more to say on Sam Elliott later, but we, we do need to do a bit more groundwork on the film itself. Yes. But the other thing I wanted to say was, like, the, all the people you listed were, like, hardcore doing steroids during the 80s. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Whereas our boy Swayze is a dancer. Correct. And obviously, like, he's incredibly muscular. He's, like, the fittest man alive. But it's not the same thing as, like, Schwarzenegger-type situation where he literally is, like, two times the size of a normal, even, like, very fit man. And... That combined with, like, the costuming choices, which are all, like, he's wearing, you know, flowing garments. (laughs) He wears a lot of sort of casual, loose beige slacks. Uh, He's wearing kind of a wraparound shirt, which I found out later from reading an article about the movie is, in fact, a karate shirt that he has tucked into his trousers, which I did not pick up on. But um, 
Yeah. The whole film is basically both totally playing into all of these macho ideas and subverting them, which is why it works so well. Because it's not actually that subversive, but there's enough in there that you can be like, interesting, he's sensitive, but he's also ripping a guy's throat out of the yeah, I mean, virtually every big leading man movie star, the trick is that you've got to have a bit of gender going on. Exactly. Correct. So shall we do a bit more background on Patrick Swayze? Yes. I mean, I don't feel like we need to go into the director, apart from his name, Rowdy Harrington, is incredible. <laughs> he specialised in what I would describe as man films. He did a few collabs with James Spader, but this is by far his most famous movie. But yeah, let, let's talk about Patrick Swayze. Give me a bit of backstory, Morgan. So, as we mentioned, this is his first movie after Dirty Dancing. He had done several other smaller things in the 80s when he was like trying to sort of make it, and they were not as successful. Dirty Dancing was his big breakout. Uh, I was looking at his Playboy interview from, I want to say, early mid-90s, which, as we were just mentioning um, in our Top Gun Patreon episode, I think... The Playboy interview that Tom Cruise did in the early 90s. Like, the Playboy interviews are such gold mines with these guys because they are so long and in depth. And he talks a lot in that interview about growing up. So, his father was, he describes him as like a gentle sort of rancher type. And his mother was famously a choreographer and dancer who was like very accomplished um, from Houston, I think. And so he was doing dancing from a very young age and also played the violin and was just like very sensitive, but also had a temper, I think. And so he was bullied really badly as a child because he did things like dance, which boys are not supposed to do. And so this was difficult because obviously bullying is bad and then he would sort of like beat kids up. So with every big actor, there's some like formative sort of like childhood, like what fucked you up? And it's clearly this for him. that There are these kind of like two things going on. And he said he did sports basically as a like defense mechanism and of course was incredibly athletic, but he was a serious trained dancer, which is evident in Dirty Dancing. And there are several moments in this movie where, especially during, <laughs> we were talking about this watching during the sex scene where you're just like, that's, he's just doing dance moves. Like, <laughs> it's just so obvious. But the other thing that really stuck out to me from looking through some of these interviews was that it was clear that getting famous was super traumatizing for him, which I think is pretty common for like huge movie stars. And he said that basically what he had liked to do was just like hang out at, you know, bars, ranches, whatever. And then he got really famous and then couldn't like basically just couldn't go outside because he was too famous. So he would just like go to the mountains and like camp. I was like, this is so grim. Like, oh my God. He had a very happy marriage. He literally says like, I would have been dead if not for my wife. And I was like, oh boy. But uh, yeah, there are a couple quotes I found from one interview in the Sunday Mail in 1988. So like between Dirty Dancing and this. And he says, there are people who want me to do a cologne. They want to call it Patrick, he scoffs. I was offered a fortune to make exercise videos, posters, all kinds of stuff. Something like $10 million worth. It's insanity. I'm not going to do any of it. And especially into the 90s, was clearly trying to do sort of like serious acting more serious acting stuff as opposed to just being a hunk. He talks very dismissively about Dirty Dancing because I think 
you know, girls liked it and he was sexy and he was like, well, that's not serious. I was like, no, it's good. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, most people who become a sex symbol without intending to have a very poor relationship with that source material. Yes. I mean, completely understandable. Like he's really good as an actor in that, in addition to being unbelievably attractive. But again, I can totally understand why it would be unpleasant. But the other quote I wanted to read was, that's very germane to this movie, is from an interview he did in 1989. The article says, Swayze could hold his own in a roadhouse, but it appears he wouldn't want to. Why is it that men go to bars and fight, he wonders. And if a fight doesn't break out by midnight, you start fighting amongst your friends. So what is that? Why do people do that? Is it a job that's killing them? Or because it's long since become clear that people's dreams are not going to come true? Frustration? Anger? The stuff that's being harbored inside? He's just like, it's like pondering this question. And clearly was just like very deep and into like, you know, meditation and stuff to cope with being famous. But um, yeah, I don't think he was the kind of guy who would uh, be a bouncer and where people starts out. But he played one convincingly in this film. And of course, died uh, of cancer very young at 57 in 2009, much to the anguish of moms across America. So in this, his character, as we say, is the greatest bouncer in the whole world. And the way they introduce both him and the setting is absolutely tremendous. We see him kind of being very observational in this bar where he kind of he knows when to scope out when there's chaos and deal with it perfectly but you can also really see why he'd be happy to go and get a job at a new bar because it's like well he's kind of sorted this place out it's time for a new mission for this kind of profit of bouncerdom Um, (laughs) and then like the next characterization point as is highlighted in this ringer article is like he (laughs) parks his car at the side of the road like he's got this old buick tosses the keys to just a guy who's nearby like he's giving away his car, then gets in a new car and drives off. And it's precisely the kind of 1980s hero power move where it's like, you're not going to explain this, but like, we now understand that this guy is really decisive and also kind of puzzling decision-wise. But when he shows up at this new bar, it's like the absolute cartoon of unbelievably chaotic rural roadside bars. The band, which is led by the musician Jeff Healy, it's like a real kind of blues rock band is behind a chain fence, which I had seen before in the movie Blues Brothers. So I assume this must be something that happens at some rough bars, but I have never been to a bar rough enough to require a chain cage to protect the uh, the band from bottles being smashed. Uh, but yeah, this whole place is chaos. There's like people like paying to like touch women's breasts in the bars. Everyone's like stabbing each other. It's incredible levels of chaos. As I said, there are many stuntmen and like former wrestlers in the cast and they really make the most of him. And kind of this first act of this movie is him, first of all, giving this pep talk to all of the bouncers and then weeding out all of the people in the bouncer staff who are bad at their jobs or are corrupt or are selling drugs on the side and stuff. And there's many amazing things about this, but I think the one that really stuck out to me, even though I was fully embedded in the world building of this movie, was that this bar (laughs) has a bouncer staff of like 15 people. (laughs) Every day, every single piece of furniture in the bar gets smashed. It's in a relatively small town, but we can only assume that everyone from miles around is driving to this bar, which has a house band employed and has enough overhead to pay for all the furniture to be placed and to pay salaries for all these dozens of bouncers. The economy of this situation is beyond the pale. But he does give this kind of monologue where he's like, 
you want to be calm and and cool and just not be angry at all until it's time to get angry and then you shut the fight down immediately. So it's like this incredible kind of insight into his character as both a Buddhist and a tough badass who is willing to tear out a throat when necessary. Just delightful management skills. And I think also during one of his early fights, that's when he meets his love interest, who is played by Kelly Lynch, who is a doctor and um you know, as is often the case with the, this type of movie, something of a weak spot because this yeah. movie is about men and her role is to be a beautiful doctor. And one of the things I read about this movie that just made me quite feel quite bad for her is apparently Kelly Lynch really researched how to do stitches and stuff realistically and she like watched an ER doctor to make sure she could emulate it. And it's like, Kelly, none of this is coming across in your performance. You are just a very beautiful blonde woman who is here to be the love interest to the main guy. And it's not a good role because it was 1989 and this is a Joel Silver produced production. So, you know, this it's just going to be what it is. <laughs> she really does the best with what she's been given, which is not very much. The first scene where they meet when she's stitching him up in the ER, I think on the scale of, like, how these movies functioned at the time is fine. Like, they actually get to have a conversation, and then that's pretty much it, because immediately thereafter, she's just sleeping with him, which, like, fair enough, he's Patrick Swayze. But then Sam Elliott shows up later, again, we'll get to him, and is just, like, hitting on her aggressively, and instead of being like, what the fuck, she's just like, oh, like, another (laughs) man hitting on me. It's like, oh my god, no. It's also really funny to see the way they kind of, um style the women in these movies of this era because there's a lot of really hot women in this film who are all in that sort of extremely trashy style that was like in vogue at that period so like the hair looks like it's flammable there is a lot of incredible sort of artificial fiber really tight bandage dresses and that sort of thing there's there's a bunch of recurring women who are at the bar another amazing amazing thing about this town is that like there's a very high volume of women who look like they probably ought to be playboy models who just happen to live in this small missouri town where all the men look like a potato but um (laughs) you know um and one of them is the abused girlfriend or wife of the evil local politician who we've not really mentioned very much yet but he is played by the classic character actor Ben Gazzara who was born in 1930 so his era was like slightly before this but like he had a very long career playing side characters and in this he is your absolute quintessential evil small town businessman who is kind of a gangster but in an unorganized way And crucially, he has a little squad of goons that follow around behind him, including one who is quite clearly implied to be his boyfriend, but that is not like direct text of the film in the articles that we looked up. Like when we were watching, you were like, oh, wow, this guy's got like a boyfriend and a girlfriend in his little squad. Yeah, so Ben Gazzara, I think we talked about when we did opening night, the Cassavetes movie, he was in a ton of Cassavetes stuff. He was like a big character guy in the 70s, though... You know, I'm sure he was acting in the 50s and 60s as well. But he just is very sort of distinctively slimy looking. Like, he just has that kind of face. Which He's is got great a little smirk. Yeah, because then you could play, you know, shitheads. Which is what he's doing here. But this gets into the whole, like, gender stuff of this film, which we've already obviously touched on because the Swayze character is so much, like, gender! Exclamation point. But it feels like he's got this whole squad of like young men who like live in his house 
meaning the the bad guy. And it's like a huge house conveniently right across the river from the like little lodging that Patrick Swayze has, you know, Yeah, he gets acquired. this amazing I mean, honestly, it looks like an Airbnb, like when you find an adorable rustic Airbnb, but in another absolutely classic Dalton interaction, like this is the only person who has these interactions in the world, is he just like walks up to a picturesque local farm, which is run exclusively by an old man who looks like Santa Claus, who's like a salt of the earth gentleman. And he's like, oh, can I like move into your barn? And he's got this lovely little apartment above the barn. And you know, he immediately is like, of course, Patrick Swayze, you can move into my barn because we are simpatico. We understand each other as sensitive men and they become besties. And it's like, of course. And Patrick Swayze is, you know, practicing Tai Chi out on the lawn where everyone can gaze at him in awe. And then across the river is this evil man's evil mansion full of sexy goons. Yes. And there will be these like parties in the pool over there. And like Patrick Swayze can see them from across the river. And it's like, Clearly something bad is happening because there's this bacchanal going on. And there are men and women at these parties. And there is this sort of, like, abused girlfriend situation. Though is she not also related to someone in the movie? She's, like, the the niece or something of one of the guys in the town. Isn't she? Is she related to him? You can see, listeners, how unclear this was. Also, <laughs> yeah. we watched this a month ago. Yeah. But, like, it's completely implausible, based on the way we see everyone interacting, that this guy would be sleeping with a woman, in my opinion. Like, he's so obviously coded as, like, an evil gay man, right? And he has all these hot henchmen with the one guy in particular, as you yeah, say. Yeah, the one guy who will come up later, because there's an amazing article we're going to talk about later, specifically about one of the fight scenes. Uh, but the actor in question, his name is Marshall Teague. He's playing Jimmy Reno, who is the the handsome, very angry sidekick of the main villain, who's just this like young guy who at one point has a fight where he like snaps a pool cue and tries to stab someone with it or something. Ama- amazing guy. But Marshall Teague is this extremely established stunt martial arts guy and actor who has an IMDb page as long as your arm. He was in The Rock. He was in Armageddon. He was in dozens of TV shows and movies. But like this was quite early in his career. And he is here specifically to do a lot of fight scenes with Patrick Swayze. Yeah. And they're all dressed in this kind of preppy New England type way. And then of course, Patrick Swayze represents the salt of the earth, except that he's wearing like (laughs) a karate shirt. Um, but what's interesting about it is that it's obviously totally common throughout the history of film, but especially in this era, to have a villain who's, like, coded gay and is sort of talking to the male protagonist in a slightly predatory way, which happens in this film. But then Sam Neill shows up. And, like, if Sam Neill and Patrick Swayze have not fucked, then this movie makes no sense. Like, that's just definitely happened. And they have more chemistry than Patrick Swayze has with any woman in this film. So there's just a lot going on with all the men. Patrick Swayze has throughout been referencing like his mentor, the guy who taught him all he knew, blah, blah, blah. And at some point he calls him and we see that it's Sam Elliott. And I don't think I realized he was going to be in the movie 
maybe his name popped up in the earlier credits, but if so, I'd forgotten it. And so I was like, oh, yes. His hair is unbelievable. So this is like, he's had gray hair for clearly a very long time. But like his hair in this is dark gray, long, like below the shoulders. And beautifully layered, like wavy. It's hair to truly dream of. And he makes the most of it cinematically. It's just, he is hypnotic. And he's very unshaven. He's got like about a a 12 o'clock shadow. I mean, canonically, this man conditions and blow dries his hair every day. Because there's no other explanation (laughs) for that situation. He just looks totally beautiful. And so then he like comes to this town because Patrick Swayze needs help with the like mafia basically being run by the Ben Gazzara character. And um, they just immediately have the most sexual tension of anyone in this film. And it is like just overwhelming. And it's, I mean, a real object lesson in sort of these movies about men that try to have, I mean, they do have a female character, right? Like she is in the movie. But because the movie is not interested in her as a person in any way, like Patrick Swayze, who obviously can have chemistry with anybody or could, he and Jennifer Grey didn't like each other when they were making Dirty Dancing and they have like the best chemistry of all time. But she's a she's the main character of that movie, right? And in this, this poor blonde woman is just like happens to be present. And so you don't care. It doesn't matter. Whereas because Sam Elliott is really important to this guy and also hot you're just like oh yeah i see what's going i see what's going on here and i think it's really typical of movies like this the like inability to sort of fully imagine women means that the homoeroticism then goes off the charts right because those are the relationships that the men making them can actually like and also the way that they are filming these really beautiful women is so superficial which i realize is a very obvious statement right but it's like you know, you have several women in this movie. You have one woman, one woman who's kind of normal looking, who's among the bar staff and is a really fun character. And then you've got the main leading woman whose job is to be like the smart one who's also really hot. And then you have several other women who are like just sexy bimbos, including the woman who's the abused spouse. But all of them are both, as we say, quite poorly characterized. And just the way they're filmed is like every single film of this era is just like, here's a hot woman wearing, you know, stilettos and a tight dress, which is like fine. <laughs> but then with the men, this movie is, first of all, completely obsessed with Patrick Swayze's body, as it should yep. be, because that's one of his key traits as like a leading man. He's a dancer and a martial artist. And also it's completely obsessed with the body because all of these bar fights are all about physical danger and people getting slammed into stuff. It's very kinetic and tangible. And that is obviously very clear in the fact that almost all of the relationships are just between men's bodies, either because they're in a bar fight or because they're in like a really personal fight, or whatever the hell is going on with Patrick Swayze and Sam Elliott. So it's like, when you have all that tension that is like building in there really intentionally, of course it's going to work better than just having Kelly Lynch show up like a Barbie doll and then having them have a sex scene. And it's like, well, this means nothing to me. (laughs) Right. There's a very funny quote from one of these interviews with Patrick Swayze where he says that the sex scene is the hottest one he's ever done. And I don't know how many sex scenes he'd done up to this point. And I was like, I don't remember the scene. So I... I mean, I, I, mean, I remember once I that it, but... he picks her up and you were like, wow, he's definitely a dancer. Yeah, because <laughs> so... he was like swaying his hips back and forth, but not in like a sex way, in a dancer way, side to side. And I was just like, yeah, that's a dance. <laughs> 
But again, because that character is a non-entity, it's very hard to care about that scene, both either emotionally or in the sense of like, oh, this is really hot, because it's just like, well, whatever. You know, there's no emotion behind it. I think we should talk more about the Western stuff, because we kind of touched on that, but didn't go super deep. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the most interesting things about the film. Yeah. I mean, the way they shoot the town makes that very apparent, because it's like, first of all, you have him kind of coming in as this lone protagonist, riding in on his metaphorical horse, which is, you know, a car. Uh, and then this is just like a very deserted, dusty town. As I said, economically, it doesn't really make sense because it kind of looks like it literally is one of these places where there's just one street. But clearly there's like enough population for all these people to be going to this bar and there's enough business for this guy to have this huge mansion and to be clearly scamming everyone. But yeah, just the setup of having... There is clearly no law in the town, which is how any of this stuff happens, because it's like no police are preventing everyone from stabbing each other in the bar every night. Everything is run by this evil guy. And then you meet all these sort of salt of the earth characters. So it's like one of the other characters they meet is like the local store owner. And he is, you know, being shaken down for a protection racket by Ben Gazzara's goons at one point in the movie. So you kind of see there's various people who are local, well-meaning hardworking patriarch types, but they are helpless to fight back against the man and they need someone to ride in and save them, preferably by ripping someone's throat out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the classic Western setup, right, is man comes to town. Which, I mean, that's the setup of most movies, but like, especially Westerns. And the idea of the man who comes to town having like a different moral code in some way than the people living there, slash that there's something kind of uncivilized about the town that the man is coming to, which obviously ties into all of these ideas about the West, is so at play here that Swayze has to teach these people how to behave. Is I mean, that's what the movie's about, which is kind of interesting. Like, that sounds really boring, but... I think there's something very compelling in a slightly retrograde way, right? About this like powerful man coming in and just being like, I'm your dad now. And like, you have to do what I say, right? And the reason he gets into so much trouble with this mafia guy is that like the guy's nephew or something is an employee at the bar and has been skimming the till. And so he fires him or tries to fire him. And the guy's like, well, you're not allowed to do that. And then basically starts fucking with them. And Despite the fact that the stakes are really low in the grand scheme of things, it is very Western-y to have it be this sort of, like, big moral battle between these opposing forces, right? And as you said, like, the setting obviously adds to that, and that there's no external authority at all. And so, like, this post at the ring are one of the things he kept pointing out was like, there are no cops. They've never called the cops. Like what's going on. But like, you can't have cops in this setup because. Well, no, I mean, in the classic Western story, it's like the reason why this happens is because of course there was no infrastructure in any of these places. And often right. it's sort of, you know, there'd be traveling gunslinger or, you know, whatever the marshals, I guess, is it marshals or the bounty hunter guys yeah. would come into town. But this is extremely loosely based on a true story where it was like there was some guy in town that everyone hated and like 
spoiler alert for this movie, that man was killed. And everyone was like, well, we just don't know how it happened. And so they couldn't prosecute. Yeah. Well, I'm sort of of two minds, right? Because on the one hand, I feel like in a small town like this, it's pretty likely that you're going to get like one cop who's like, I'm in charge of everything and I'm in everybody's business. Alternatively, the one cop is like, I don't care about anything. Right? Like, I'm going to sit at my desk and play Tetris and do nothing. But irrespective of reality, which is obviously not what this movie is concerned with, it's sort of proposing, like, how do these men figure out how to conduct themselves when there is nobody watching? And the sort of idea, which I think people find very compelling, of, like, someone who simply will not give in yeah, when there's, like, an easy way out. And he's like, no, I just refuse. Like, my morals will not allow me to do this, even if it would be way easier to just let this sort of shitty guy work at the bar. And I mean, part of the reason why he can do that is because, like, he is specifically characterized as being a huge weirdo. He's like, I don't like to have a phone or a television. I love to meditate and do Tai Chi. I have a personal philosophy. I'm a studious gentleman who, after going to NYU, decided that he wanted to be a bouncer for the rest of his life. And also, P.S., I have fully murdered people in the past, but in a really chill way. And, like, of course, like, they're not trying to say, like, this guy is normal or even particularly aspirational because, like, he's kind of mournful and, like, is never going to fit into society. But that also makes him really cool. (laughs) Well, I was just watching um, The Maltese Falcon, which is one of my favorite movies I hadn't seen in a couple of years. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, the Bogart character in that is a private detective who similarly kind of, like, has his own code of ethics And he's not presented as necessarily as, like, aspirational as Swayze in this movie. Like, that's a really cold, dark movie. But part of what's compelling about that character, and I think a lot of these sort of, like, male films with these, like, renegade guys, is that, like, they have a code, right? And, like, they're going to stick to their code, and they're not going to let anyone tell them what to do. And... Of course, they have to win because that's how storytelling works. I mean, we both literally just watched Thief with James Caan, which is in a very similar vein, although totally completely different, which we will be discussing in an episode soon. I mean, it's exactly the same thing, right? Of like, he's not going to be pushed around by this guy who's trying to control him. Like, he is going to be in control. And all three of these movies are kind of coming at that differently and looking at in different to different degrees, like how much that costs right and this is the one that's like it's actually fine you can kill everyone and then there will be no consequences and then you can live with the hot girl and swim in the the river and it's all very nice which like that's fine that's the american dream yep so why don't we talk about the fight stuff that you were alluding to (laughs) earlier so obviously there's many fights in this some of which as I say, are geared very much toward incredibly well-shot, chaotic bar fights, which is, like, a difficult thing to choreograph because there are some movies where it's just really chaotic. This film, by the way, was shot by the cinematographer Dean Cundy, who uh, has done many a classic movie, including Apollo 13, Jurassic Park, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and the Back to the Future trilogy. So this guy is... He does great work in very mainstream but extremely good-looking movies that have a variety of sort of lighting and settings and so forth. 
But yeah, there's this fantastic article I found at Mel magazine, which goes into exhaustive depth on a specific fight scene, which is between Patrick Swayze and Marshall Teague's character, Jimmy Reno, who is the young sidekick slash probable lover of the villain. And this is like a nighttime fight scene where they're both half naked and they are just like wailing on each other by the river. And it's very intense and very fun to watch and culminates, as you can probably guess, with Patrick Swayze ripping his throat out with his hand. (laughs) And we will link to this in the show notes, you have to read it, but um, it's just a delightful interview because like Marshall Teague is kind of talking about how First of all, everyone who's ever worked with Patrick Swayze was like, this guy was a dream. He was unbelievably charismatic. But like before they shot this, they kind of intentionally avoided each other. So like they basically had not made friends at all. They were kind of antagonistic and they were ramping up the tension before shooting this scene. And so Marshall Teague was like an expert, experienced martial artist guy. And Patrick Swayze had a lot of martial arts training, but was like predominantly a dancer. And beforehand, Marshall Teague was sort of like, seeding in the ideas of like, oh, I think you're kind of a pussy sort of implications and being like, I bet he can't throw a punch. So when it came to actually fighting the fight, he'd actually riled up Patrick Swayze enough that they had a real fight. (laughs) So obviously they were doing the choreography, but like the choreography in the script, as with many movies, was just like, put a fight here. And then the people who are the choreographers and the stunt people make up the fight. So like, In this interview, which is too long to read all of, essentially they're saying, yeah, there is a hell of a lot of moves here which are completely genuine. And they, after like shooting the first few parts of this scene, obviously Patrick Swayze was not fooled into thinking this guy hated him, but they both agreed like, our blood's up. Let's just agree not to hit each other in the face or like damage anything that needs to be filmed. And let's just fight as much as we can. So they're like out there cracking each other's ribs and stuff. So there's this quote here from Marcel Teague who refers to Patrick Sweeney as Buddy all the way through. He says, Buddy got up and spat dirt out of his mouth. He said, guys, this is what I came for. Let us dance. It's what we came for. And from that point on, they finally realized that was the way this was going to go. And then someone else involved in the movie says, Patrick and Marshall really didn't pull any punches, literally, up until they realized they kind of had to go easy because they were messing each other up pretty bad. And it shows. (laughs) And then Teague says, they'd look at my eye and say, did makeup put that in your eye? And I'd say, nope. Patrick put that blood in my eye. (laughs) And also he claims that he improvised one of the most iconic lines in this movie, which is him saying, I used to fuck guys like you in prison, (laughs) which is uh, a bold type of threat, which would not appear in a film of this era now. But he says he thought of that idea. And one of the filmmakers says that the producer Joel Silver came up with that line. But either way, incredible line, just in context here. And, um, The other detail I found delightful was Marshall Teague saying, funny story, I made $500 after that scene because a bunch of wiseacres were betting $20 that when I hit water, which was 42 degrees, I'd suck air. This is referring to after he'd had his throat cut out and he had to pretend to be a dead corpse falling into the river. So Teague continues, my bet, not only will I not come up to breathe, but I won't come up until they say cut. So you see me floating down. They finally said, ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap on the fight. We got it. I held up my hands and said, pay me. (laughs) (laughs) And just like every anecdote from this extensively long interview is just like, wow, first of all, clearly people have been dining out on stories from this movie forever. So who can say how much of this is 100% accurate? But secondly, it seems like the background of Roadhouse was in a very positive way, very much like what we saw in the movie Roadhouse. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, men are just, they're incredible. There's just so much going on, on every level. 
that we cannot begin to comprehend. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah, I didn't have time to read that before we started recording, so I will be going back and uh, perusing. Many, many details going extremely in-depth as a sort of a the oral history of specifically this fight scene. I mean, at one point, he one of them compares the fight to Beethoven's Ninth. He's like, oh, this is like the ode to joy of fight scenes. <laughs> Just like, sure, okay. Well, the ripping of the throat out thing is pretty amazing because they're, yes. they tease it the whole movie. And of course, you know it's going to happen at some point. And then they're just like, here it is, and like linger for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, because it's so iconic, apparently it's like, it's one of these things where like a lot of teenage boys have discussed over the years whether it's possible. Um, It's apparently based on like a real move where you um kind of grab into someone's collarbone. But obviously it's not possible with a human hand unless you have like metal claws. You're not going to tear anything, but like you can do damage by grabbing someone's collarbone if you're good at it. But yeah, no, obviously not based in physical reality. <laughs> well, there's a lot in this movie that's not based yeah. in physical reality. I think to wrap, we should touch on a couple of the other sort of hilarious over-the-top fight slash stunt things. I'm thinking of the monster truck situation. Oh and my the god, final, how could I forget that? <laughs> the final thing with all the animals in yes. the guy's basement. So there's two amazing vehicle scenes in this, actually. One of them is where the bad guy proves that he is the evil Donald Trump of the town by ordering someone to drive a monster truck over an entire car lot full of cars, ruining someone's business. And the other one is earlier in the movie where we see the villain just driving in like a kind of sinuous S shape up and down along the highway in his little red convertible while the song Shaboom plays in the background. And he's like singing along acting very strange and just like weaving around because he is so confident that no matter where he drives in the road, everyone else is going to drive out of the way. And this is the point where Patrick Swayze realizes like something is fucking wrong with this guy. (laughs) Yes. Great character detail. And then the film concludes with a shootout in his basement that is full of taxidermied animals, like giant taxidermied animals that is just so outside the realm of reality. <laughs> One of the things pointed out in this article we keep referencing at the ringer is that, like, someone, I can't remember if it's him or one of the goons, dies when, like, a polar bear, a taxidermied polar bear has been, like, tipped onto him. But instead of just, like, running out of the way, he just He, like, there. thinks that it's a real polar bear and, like, shoots it 25 times. And it's like, that final sequence is very much of its time. <laughs> yes, but in a way that like I believe we were we were cracking up watching oh, it's it because very entertaining. It's, it's very very funny. And the like excess of it both as a piece of film and in terms of like of course this rich asshole has all of this shit in his house. It all kind of makes sense for the movie. But obviously the high point in terms of choreography is the throat ripping. Which just makes it really funny that like one of the potentially apocryphal but one of the kind of factoids that people write about this movie is it was like the most watched movie on tv like it was just like airing on tv throughout the 90s but obviously most places had an era censored version so like presumably you can't show anyone's like throat being ripped out and of course they would have cut the sex scene but like this <laughs> the idea of there being a censored version of this where like you can't hear any of the like naughty one-liners is hilarious <laughs> like what's left i yeah. just <laughs> tai chi <laughs> I know, I know. 
it really did make me want to rewatch Point Break, which I haven't seen in many years, but which I think is the best acting performance I've seen from Swayze. What a tremendous actor he was and like movie star. Like you just get that so much from this. Obviously, some people are movie stars, some people are actors, and some people are both. And I think he was a really good actor, and clearly that was something he cared about a lot. Like, he wanted to be taken seriously and not just be, like, a pinup. But there's just a an it factor, right, with movie stars where, like, they just hold the screen in a way, and, like, it's not quantifiable, and he had it so much. Like, you just wanted to watch him. You want to watch him stand quietly and observe things, and you're like, this is hypnotic. Give me more. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, highly recommend Roadhouse. Just a great time. So enjoyable. Um, if you would like to hear our evisceration of the Netflix film Persuasion, you can find that at our, at our Patreon. We will be having another full episode about a different adaptation of Persuasion, the one that came out in 2007 starring Sally Hawkins in a couple of weeks. So there's just a lot of Persuasion going on if you want to take the time to, you know, watch a version, read the book, etc., so our Patreon is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. You can find all our bonus episodes there, and you can sponsor an episode if you would like there as well. We also greatly appreciate ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use. A five-star review is especially helpful for visibility. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor, and you can find me on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Letterboxd and Twitter at ML Davies. My work is at Bustle. Uh, this week, I had a piece go up on the bad historical hair and persuasion, which I think our listeners will probably enjoy. It seems up your guys' alley. A topic close to Morgan's heart. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. We are on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.